I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of Second Peter. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Let's begin with a short introduction to Second Peter. It was written by Peter about the same time, of course, afterward as First Peter, between 62 and 64 A.D., We begin with the benchmarks of committed Christian living in verses 1 through 15 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's begin by just reading the first four verses. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now verse 1 contains an interesting comparative phrase regarding the quality of one's salvation. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter declares regarding the salvation of his readers that they have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The phrase like precious there comes from the Greek adjective esatomos, meaning equally precious. That's a reference to the fact that their salvation in Jesus Christ is in no way inferior to his own as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Every verb used in verses 2 through 4 is either the Greek aorist or perfect tense, both tenses indicating the completed action of salvation. So here's what a believer gets at the point of salvation in Jesus Christ. He gets the inclusion of grace and peace in verse 2. The awarding of all those things that pertain unto life and godliness we see in verse 3. He gets the calling to glory and virtue in verse 3, the awarding of exceeding great and precious promises of verse 4, and also the inclusion as partakers of the divine nature, also found in verse 4. Now, because of all this, believers have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, is in verse 4. Again, all the verbs used in verses 2 through 4 are either aorist or perfect, indicating that all of these items accompanied our salvation experience when we were saved. Now notice particularly verse 4, which says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This divine nature, by the way, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that accompanies every believer's life. Let's continue reading now with verse 5. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Well, we see the qualities of victorious Christian living here in verses 5 through 8. We already know from Paul's writings, especially to the Galatians, that these attributes are achieved through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which we see in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Let's take particular note of the phrase that he uses in verse 5 when he says, Add to your faith. The compound Greek word for add there is epikorigeo, which means to super add or add upon. In other words, it means to add to what is already there. This word is just used five times in the New Testament, twice by Peter here and in verse 11, and in both those places it's translated ministered. So while Peter encourages believers to add these qualities, Paul, on the other hand, explains the mechanics of doing so in his explanation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Let's take a look at the attributes that Peter is admonishing his readers to demonstrate. If you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, you'll see that I've listed the Greek words for each of these, but let me just give you the uh, English definitions, and if you're more curious, then you can look at the uh, written notes. First of all, virtue, which means moral excellence, then knowledge, being knowledge of the Word of God, self-control, perseverance means the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances, godliness, he's talking about behavior reflecting correct religious beliefs and attitudes, then brotherly kindness, the Greek word there, too good to pass up, is Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, of course. And then finally, love, uh, the Greek word agape means sacrificial love. And talk about the joy of Christian living, look at verse 8. It says, for if these things be in you and abound... They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, here's the deal. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then verses 5 through 7 flow naturally, and the joy of verse 8 is realized. I fully recognize that Peter doesn't actually make reference per se to the Holy Spirit here. However, the Apostle Paul clearly defines the believer's condition of verse 8 to have been achieved through the power of the Holy Spirit. But what about the immature believer? I mean, the one who has not advanced in the faith. Well, there he is in verse 9. It says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. There is no question that Peter's talking about a saved person here because he's been purged from his old sins. However, the subject is obviously not happy or fulfilled in his Christian life as he tries to live it without the fullness of the Holy Spirit working within. Now understand this. All believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
But not all believers are filled by the Holy Spirit, as we see from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Of course, God wants all believers to walk in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit all the time. Now, let's move to the verse that some have incorrectly used to indicate that a believer may lose his salvation. By the way, a believer cannot lose his salvation. But verse 10 says this, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Verses 5-8 through eight are the symptoms of spirit-led living that make our calling and election sure. The Greek word for sure here is bebeos, which means stable. Now, this is the opposite concept of the last word of this verse, which is fall in the King James Version. Now, the Greek word for fall in the King James Version is teo, which means stumble, and that's the way it's translated in the New King James Version. The word fall in the King James Version here is not to be taken as losing one's salvation, although if you're reading just King James, you might get that impression. This verse simply means that when we are controlled by the Holy Spirit in verses 5 through 8, we demonstrate a stability in our Christian walk, unlike the immature Christians who stumble. When Peter was admonishing his readers to add the attributes of verses 5 through 7, he used the Greek word epikorigeo, which means to superadd. Here the word is used again in verse 11, but this time the New King James Version translates it supplied. It appears to be a play on words by Peter in using the same word twice, here and verse 5. So when your life reflects the attributes of verses 5 through 7, then the appearance or the entrance in the New King James Version of Jesus Christ, meaning the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, that rapture will have super-added significance attached to it. In other words, when you prepare for the appearance of Jesus Christ, that appearance will hold superabundance for you when it finally takes place. In verses 12 and 13, Peter emphasizes his commitment to keeping the message of spirit-led service before his readers. He saw his mission, as he describes in verse 13, to stir you up by reminding you. The Greek verb for stir up there is deagaro, which means to fully awaken. Let's face it. Some believers need a wake-up call from time to time to help them recognize or remember their responsibility to live their lives in a way that glorifies our Lord. Peter anticipates his death in verses 14 and 15, but emphasizes that he wants this message of Christian living to endure past his death. We have a reference to the transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter uses two events to validate the Messiahship of Jesus Christ here in verses 16 through 18 the supernatural occurrences at his baptism, and also the transfiguration. 
It is two points of validation for the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 16 are the baptism of Jesus Christ in verse 17, which is found in Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke chapter 3. And then the transfiguration in verse 18, which is recorded in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Peter points out that he was an eyewitness of the glory of Christ in Matthew chapter 17. That's when Christ appeared with Moses and Elijah, the event that we commonly know as the transfiguration. Then in verse 19, Peter further establishes the messiahship of Jesus with prophecy. The prophecies of the Old Testament are further validated because the transfiguration is a preview of their fulfillment. Peter links this transfiguration experience with Old Testament prophecy and then explains the supernatural aspect of Scripture in verses 20 and 21 when he says, "...knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation." For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Scripture is not given by man's intellect, being not of any private interpretation, but it comes from God with the phrase, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These two facts make Christ, through Scripture, uniquely worthy of our honor. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we see that God will take care of the righteous and the false prophets. Verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Now here's a chapter with some rather sobering warnings to those who resist the truth and preach false doctrine. False doctrine is false doctrine. It's seated in wickedness. False teachers many times have elements of truth all through their teaching. But false doctrine is false doctrine. Beware of those who do not embrace the entire doctrine of righteousness in their teaching. Now listen, disregard their eloquence or rationale. Go for 100% truth. Now let's deal with the doctrinal implications of this passage with regard to the state of salvation for these false teachers. It's unrealistic to read this chapter and conclude anything other than that these false teachers are headed for hell. Peter goes way out of his way with terminology and examples to make this abundantly clear. Now for the problem. What then does verse 1 mean when it says, even denying the Lord that bought them? I mean, if you bought, aren't you saved? Now in case you're wondering, you won't get any help from knowing the Greek verb for bought there. It's agorazo, which simply means to buy. Quite a lot has been written on this verse in the way of explanation. Much of what has been written sounds like double talk, giving so much irrelevant information that one may not realize the real issue has not really been satisfied. So let's try to cut through the double talk and come to a viable conclusion about this verse. And let me give you two positions held by credible Bible teachers on this very verse and give you an opportunity to decide for yourself. Here's position number one. These false teachers understand terminology and claim to have been bought by Jesus Christ, though in fact they are unregenerate. So Peter is just citing their claim to have been bought, in other words, redeemed in Christ by his death on the cross. 
Position number two, everyone who comes into this world is bought, but until they receive Christ as their personal Savior, it's not appropriated for them. This position states that bought is not necessarily saved. In other words, all saved people are bought, but not all bought people are saved. Regarding the second position here, let's give some thought to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what about 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? Those two verses say, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It's certainly plausible to assume that Peter may have been writing in these terms in reference to false teachers being bought, though having never appropriated salvation for themselves by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. You may find it helpful to know the underlying Greek noun used four times in these three verses. That Greek word is apalia. The New King James Version translates it as destructive and destruction in verse 1. In verse 2, it's translated as destructive ways again. In verse 3, it's also translated destruction. Peter used the exact same word in all four instances. In addition to these four renderings, Peter uses the exact same Greek noun in chapter 3, translated perdition in verse 7, and destruction in verse 16. Altogether, apalia is used 20 times in the New Testament. One more significant occurrence is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Here's what Paul says when he uses the word. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's a reference to the beast, the word perdition there. The beast of Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, he's the man that we typically refer to as the Antichrist. Now, make no mistake about it, verses 4 through 22, which we're getting ready to read here, those verses clearly establish that these subjects are wicked, unregenerate people. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption." and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. 
They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and... A sow, having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. In light of the wording of verses 1 through 3, it seems futile to try to make a case that eternal damnation for these false teachers is not the intended meaning here. Peter gives several examples of God's judgment on wickedness in verses 4 through 19 to reinforce his point. Verses 20 through 22 require some explanation in this context as well. Save people or not? Well, we've already established that they're not saved these false teachers. But verse 20 indicates that they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that saved? Well, no. Many people have the knowledge and move towards salvation, but never really get saved. These false teachers were obviously people who had convincingly positioned themselves where it appeared they were following Christ, but not really. They never really got saved. The parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23, also paralleled in Mark 4 and Luke 8. Look at my notes on that, and you'll see that this parable illustrates this condition exactly. In that parable by Jesus, only the fourth category of seed recipients actually responded. The first three received knowledge, but declined. So is the case with these false teachers. In verses 4 through 6, Peter gives three Old Testament examples of the destruction of wickedness. In verse 4, the angels who sin, perhaps a reference to the same angels seen in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. Perhaps it's a reference to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We have no way of knowing for certain. Then he refers to, in verse 5, the flood on the world of the ungodly. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 8, down through chapter 7, verse 24. And then finally, the turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes in verse 6. That's, of course, a reference to Genesis chapter 19. The deliverance of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah seen in verses 7 through 9 is an example of how Peter expects to see his readers delivered from these false teachers. The wording of those three verses leaves no doubt that Peter considered these false teachers to be unregenerate men. Verse 10 needs a little explanation when it says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. The Greek word for authority there is kuriates, which is only used four times in the New Testament. It's also translated authority in Jude verse 8, but dominion by Paul in his letters to the Ephesians and Colossians. 
When Paul uses the word kuriates in Ephesians one twenty one and Colossians one sixteen, he uses it in the context referring to supernatural authority. It seems best to understand it in that context here as well. Furthermore, the word dignitaries comes from the Greek word doxa, which is a frequently used word almost always translated glory. Translating it as dignitaries in the New King James Version only occurs here and Jude 8. So the wording of verse 10 doesn't really reflect their resistance against human government, but rather supernatural powers. That understanding is supported by verse 11 where it is said that angels, being supernatural powers, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. The moral shortcomings of these false teachers are certainly identical in verses 12 through 14 just prior to being compared to Balaam in verses 15 and 16. That reference gives us a good bit of insight regarding these false teachers. Balaam was a false pagan prophet, although he did actually get a word of prophecy from the one true God. But then again, so did his donkey. We start reading about him in Numbers chapter 22. Balaam was an enemy of God and of Israel who just happened to get a word from God. In verse 17, these false teachers are compared to empty wells and storms without rainfall. They offer promise but don't deliver spiritual nourishment. We see in verses 18 to 22 that their motivations are altogether corrupt. Peter wraps up these false teacher comments with an Old Testament proverbial quote, Proverbs 26:11. It says, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. This puts the lid on the case of these false teachers. They are unregenerate evil people who verbalize just enough truth to doctrinally snag the uninformed. So, in chapter 3, Peter addresses the issue of what's taking so long. Verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water." But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." Does it seem like a long time, I mean a long time, for the promise of the return of Christ? Peter addresses this issue here in verses 1-6 through 6 when he compares our waiting for the return of Jesus to that of the long wait for the judgment of God against the inhabitants of the earth prior to the flood. He indicates in verses 3 and 4 that there will be those who will prompt others to question the promises of God, just as in Noah's day. In that passage, Noah appears to have preached righteousness for 120 years prior to the flood, but to no avail. Read about that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 3-7. through 7. Peter concludes this comparison in verse 7 when he says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire 
until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, hang on, it's coming. And really, the wait isn't that long after all, he says in Second Peter 3, 8, when he says this, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You see, God has a timetable. We get impatient, but to him, everything's on schedule. Perhaps Peter was thinking of Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. Some have used verse 8 here as a consistent timetable formula. I'm not comfortable with the notion that one day with God is always a thousand years with man. That formula has been used in a variety of prophetic applications and even utilized as an innovative look at the six days of creation. The emphasis for Peter here is that God's definition of a long time is not necessarily our definition of a long time. I really don't feel comfortable making it mean anything beyond that. Verse 9 has created a dilemma for some. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For those who firmly teach that God has determined that some people who are born into this world are willed to be lost without hope of salvation, well, this verse is very difficult to explain for them. Their view is that saved people only are being called upon to repentance in this verse. In view of the Noahic flood analogy of verses 5 and 6, that position simply doesn't make sense. This verse seems instead to indicate that God is allowing time, lots of time, for the salvation of more people prior to his return because he is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Now, if you want to know more about foreknowledge, election, and predestination, then look at my notes on Romans chapter 9 where I just tell you everything I know about it. And then we find that sometimes a day is not a day in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 10 begins with this phrase, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So what exactly is that? The rapture, the second coming of Christ, the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth? What? The word day here is undoubtedly used figuratively like we use that word ourselves, you know, like back in my day or there's coming a day. Paul used the word similarly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. As a matter of fact, we know from the book of Revelation that the events of 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13 may be a description of those which take place during the last few weeks of the tribulation during the vile judgments recorded in Revelation 15. Perhaps, however, Peter is making reference to the occasion detailed in Revelation 21, verse 1, which follows immediately upon the heels of the millennium when the current earth is completely destroyed at once and a new earth is created. As a matter of fact, the wording of verse 13 matches exactly the provisions of the new heaven and new earth of Revelation chapter 21. 
By the way, nobody really knows when a thief is coming. It is reserved for our future as a big old surprise. That being the case, verse 11 encourages us to be in pursuit of godliness at all times. In the new heaven and new earth, only righteousness will prevail. Verse 13 is where we see that. And then to close out his letter, the admonition to stand strong in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 3. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So we see, finally, stay away from those teachers with false teaching. Don't let them get you off track, we see in verse 14. Peter makes reference to Paul's writings in verses 15 and 16 and mentions the false teachers again who reject this sound teaching. Don't listen to those false teachers. Verse 17, they'll chisel away at your stability. Translated steadfastness here, your stability or steadfastness in the Lord. The opposite of the steadfastness is the confusion that results in the destruction of the untaught and unstable. These are referenced in verse 17 as those teaching the error of the wicked. The New King James Version translates the Greek verb streblao as twist in verse 16, having the connotation to twist or pervert. These are references to the same false teachers of chapter 2. They are wicked and they're bound for destruction. Stick with the unadulterated Word of God. Now here's the key to victorious Christian living in verse 18 but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker. 